Section 18 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Blank's House, the Blank, is very splendid. It contains a quantity of ormolu. Now I like to have a kettle in my bedroom to heat a little water if necessary, but I can't get a kettle at the Blank, though there is a quantity of ormolu. Lady Dash says that when she is at the blank she is obliged to have her clothes unpacked three times a day, for there are no chests of drawers, though there is a quantity of ormolu. The letters I receive from people of both sexes, people whom I never heard of, asking me for money, either as a gift or as a loan, are really innumerable. Here's one from a student at Durham requesting me to lend him ninety pounds. How modest to stop short of the hundred. I lately had a begging epistle from a lady who assured me that she used formerly to take evening walks with me in the park. Of course I did not answer it. A day or two after I had a second letter from her beginning. Unkind one. Uvdal Price once chose to stay so long at my house that I began to think he would never go away, so I one day ingeniously said to him, You must not leave me before the end of next week. If you insist on going after that, you may, but certainly not before. And at the end of the week he did go. He was a most elegant letter-writer, and his son had some intention of collecting and publishing his correspondence. Not long before Mrs. Inchbald died, I met her walking near Charing Cross. She told me that she had been calling on several old friends, but had seen none of them, some being really not at home and others denying themselves to her. I called, she said, on Mrs. Siddons. I knew she was at home, yet I was not admitted. She was in such low spirits that she even shed tears. I begged her to turn with me and take a quiet dinner at St. James's Place, but she refused. I have heard Crabbe describe his mingled feelings of hope and fear as he stood on London Bridge when he first came up to town to try his fortune in the literary world. The situation of domestic chaplain in a great family is generally a miserable one. What slights and mortifications attend it? Crabbe had his share of such troubles in the Duke of Rutland's family, and I well remember that at a London evening party where the old Duchess of Rutland was present, he had a violent struggle with his feelings before he could prevail on himself to go up and pay his respects to her. Crabb, after his literary reputation had been established, was staying for a few days at the old Hummins, but he was known to the people in the coffee room and to the waiters merely as a Mr. Crabb. One forenoon, when he had gone out, a gentleman called on him, and while expressing his regret at not finding him at home, happened to let drop the information that Mr. Crabbe was the celebrated poet. The next time that Crabbe entered the coffee-room, he was perfectly astonished at the sensation which he caused, 
the company were all eagerness to look at him the waiters all a viciousness to serve him crabbe's early poetry is by far the best as to finish the conclusion of the library is charmingly written go on then son of vision still pursue thy airy dreams the world is dreaming too ambition's lofty views the pomp of state the pride of wealth the splendours of the great stripped of their mask their cares and troubles known are visions far less happy than thy own go on and while the sons of care complain be wisely gay and innocently vain while serious souls are by their fears undone blow sportive bladders in the beamy sun and call them worlds and bid the greatest show more radiant colours in their worlds below then as they break the slaves of care reprove and tell them such are all the toys they love i asked him why he did not compose his later verses with equal care he answered because my reputation is already made when he afterwards told me that he never produced more than forty verses a day i said that he had better do as i do stint himself to four there is a familiarity in some parts of his tales which makes one smile and yet it is by no means unpleasing for example letters were sent when franks could be procured and when they could not silence was endured footnote the frank courtship crabbe used often to repeat with praise this couplet from prior's solomon abra was ready ere i called her name and though i called another abra came it is somewhere cited by sir walter scott and i apprehend that crabbe made it known to him other statesmen besides sir robert peel have had very violent things said against them in the house lord north once complained in a speech of quote, the brutal language which colonel barret had used towards him general tarleton not indeed in the house but in private among his own party said that quote, he was glad to see fox's legs swelled sir robert peel in one of his communicative moods told me that when he was a boy his father used to say to him bob you dog if you are not prime minister some day i'll disinherit you i mentioned this to sir robert's sister mrs dawson who assured me that she had often heard her father use those very words it is curious how fashion changes pronunciation in my youth everybody said lunnon not london fox said lunnon to the last and so did crow the now fashionable pronunciation of several words is to me at least very offensive contemplate is bad enough but balcony makes me sick when george coleman brought out his iron chest he had not the civility to offer godwin a box or even to send him an order for admission 
though the play was dramatised from Caleb Williams. Of this Godwin spoke with great bitterness. Godwin was generally reckoned a disagreeable man, but I must say that I did not consider him such. Ah, the fate of my old acquaintance, Lady Salisbury. The very morning of the day on which the catastrophe occurred, I quitted Hatfield, and I then shook her by the hand, that hand which was so soon to be a cinder. In the evening, after she had been dressed for dinner, her maid left her to go to tea. She was then writing letters, and it is supposed that having stooped down her head, for she was very short-sighted, the flame of the candle caught her headdress. Strange enough, but we had all remarked the day before that Lady Salisbury seemed most unusually depressed in spirits. Her eyes, as is generally the case with short-sighted persons, were so good that she could read without spectacles. Being very deaf, she would often read when in company, and as she was a bad sleeper, she would sometimes read nearly the whole night. Madame de Stahl one day said to me, How sorry I am for Campbell. His poverty so unsettles his mind that he cannot write. I replied, Why does he not take the situation of a clerk? He could then compose verses during his leisure hours. This answer was reckoned very cruel, both by Madame de Stahl and Mackintosh. But there was really kindness as well as truth in it. When literature is the sole business of life, it becomes a drudgery. When we are able to resort to it only at certain hours, it is a charming relaxation. In my earlier years, I was a banker's clerk, obliged to be at my desk every day from ten till five o'clock, and I never shall forget the delight with which I'm returning home I used to read and write during the evening. There are some of Campbell's lyrics which will never die. His Pleasures of Hope is no great favourite with me. The feeling throughout his Gertrude is very beautiful, and one line describing Gertrude's eyes is exquisite. Those eyes that seem to love whatever they looked upon. But that poem has passages which are monstrously incorrect. Can anything be worse in expression than, O oh, love, in such a wilderness as this, where transport and security entwine, here is the empire of thy perfect bliss, and here thou art indeed a god divine. I cannot forgive Goethe for certain things in his Faust and Wilhelm Meister, the man who appeals to the worst part of my nature commits a great offence. The talking openly of their own merits is a, quote, magnanimity peculiar to foreigners. Do you remember the angry surprise which Lamartine expresses at Lady Hester Stanhope's never having heard of him? Of him, a person so celebrated over all the world? Lamartine is a man of genius, but very affected. Talleyrand, when in London, invited me to meet him, and placed me beside him at dinner. I asked him, 
Are you acquainted with Berger? No. He wished to be introduced to me, but I declined it. I would go, said I, a league to see him. This was nearly all our conversation. He did not choose to talk. In short, he was so disagreeable that some days after, both Talleyrand and the Duchess de Dino apologised to me for his ill-breeding. At present, new plays seem hardly to be regarded as literature. People may go to see them acted, but no one thinks of reading them. During the run of Paul Pry, I happened to be at a dinner party where everybody was talking about it. That is about Liston's performance of the hero. I asked first one person, then another, and then another, who was the author of it. Not a man or woman in the company knew that it was written by Poole. When people have had misunderstandings with each other and are anxious to be again on good terms, they ought never to make attempts at reconciliation by means of letters. They should see each other. Sir Walter Scott quarrelled with Lady Rosslyn, in consequence, I believe, of some expressions he had used about Fox. If Scott, said she, instead of writing to me on the subject, had only paid me a visit, I must have forgiven him. There had been for some time a coolness between Lord Durham and myself, and I was not a little annoyed to find I was to sit next to him at one of the Royal Academy dinners. I requested the stewards to change my place at the table, but it was too late to make any alteration. We sat down. Lord Durham took no notice of me. At last I said to him, Will your lordship do me the honour of drinking a glass of wine with me? He answered, Certainly, on condition that you will come and dine with me soon. Lord Grenville has more than once said to me at Dropmore, What a frightful mistake it was to send such a person as Lord Castlereagh to the Congress of Vienna, a man who was so ignorant that he did not know the map of Europe, and who could be won over to make any concessions by only being asked to breakfast with the Emperor. Castlereagh's education had been sadly neglected, but he possessed considerable talents and was very amiable. Castlereagh, ignorant to the last, with no principle or feeling, right or wrong. Before he spoke, he would collect what he could on the subject, but never spoke above the level of a newspaper. He had three things in his favour, tact, good humour and courage. Liverpool, indolent in the extreme, footnote, the Earl of Liverpool was then, 1825, Prime Minister, has no speaker on his side. If the Chancellor, Lord Eldon, spoke, it is generally to oppose him. End of section 18